It's All Journalism has always been a labor of love for its producers. We do the interviews, edit the audio, and present weekly podcasts to you free of charge. While we did launch a Patreon page a few years back to great fanfare and little success, we haven't really asked our listeners for financial support. That may change at some point, but for now, we'd like you to continue enjoying our content for free. While we're not asking for your dollars, we would like to ask you to do a few simple things to help our podcast grow. First, subscribe to It's All Journalism on your favorite audio platform. Then, go to itsalljournalism.com and sign up for our weekly email newsletter. Like and share our episodes on social media. Rate and like our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to It's All Journalism. Tell a friend or colleague about It's All Journalism. You can also take one of our anonymous online surveys. These simple actions from our loyal audience can have a huge impact on our podcast's success. You can find out more about our podcast at itsalljournalism.com. I became a journalist because I was, you know, the five or seven-year-old who was walking around the house asking questions. And so when college time came, my father said, oh, why don't you study journalism? Ask someone why they became a journalist, and you're likely to hear a familiar story about being that kid who asked questions and wanted to tell stories. But ask that same person why they're still a journalist, you're likely to hear something surprising and even inspiring. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Jennifer Karchmert is an award-winning independent journalist, educator, and editorial consultant with a variety of interests, one of which is coaching up-and-coming journalists about our profession. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thank you, Michael. I'm glad we had a chance to meet like this. We, we'd exchanged some emails in the past, and I did want to talk to you about your, you know, your career, your editorial consulting, and also the work you're doing around the New Voices initiative. But you've had kind of this long and winding career in journalism. Tell me about your journalist journey. You bet. And thank you again for having me on the podcast. I should start off by saying thank you also for my It's All Journalism mug. I happen to be profiled and featured in your email there as one of the people holding a mug with coffee in it. So thank you. And you earned that mug by filling out one of our surveys and we happily send it to you. And how much did I charge you for that mug? I believe zero dollars. Exactly. So that's how that works, folks. If you if you go to our website and fill out one of our surveys, we will send you a mug while supplies last. But anyway, enough of this. So how did you become a journalist? Well, I'm actually one of those people who studied journalism in college and then went on to be a journalist. <laughs> this, of course, was uh, more than 30 years ago. So there were jobs in the late 80s and the early 90s, and going into journalism seemed like a lucrative and positive experience. So yes, I'm a graduate of Ithaca College's Roy H. Park School of Communications, a proud bomber's. And I studied journalism and then got right into radio as soon as I graduated. So that was the medium that attracted me. I have moved my way throughout all of the mediums, then moving on to working in TV, working at CNN in New York, and then working in print, working for my hometown newspaper, the Poughkeepsie Journal, which is a Gannett-owned paper. And I've since worked for McClatchy as well and have done some stringing and freelance writing for the New York Post and a variety of publications. So, of course, then in the 2000s, moved to digital and online writing. So I've kind of moved through all of the different mediums. And then I actually became an independent journalist around the year, I would say, 2010, 
when I moved to the West Coast and started to be based in Washington State, where I also started teaching journalism. So I, I've worn a variety of hats. I have taught news writing and mass media and that kind of thing in journalism at Western Washington University based in Bellingham, Washington. And then since about 2010, I've kind of worn the freedom of the press advocate hat, where I'm definitely advocating for First Amendment and freedom of the press and have gotten more interested in international news and international reporting. Yeah, isn't it amazing that that we have to advocate for freedom of the press these days? It's <laughs> it's because you know you started not long after I started, and this was just everybody kind of understood that this is really kind of a great thing, and a free you know unfettered press is a great thing, and it's actually something very admirable about the United States. But that's not always the case. <laughs> At least, uh, certainly overseas, it's you know there are places that have uh, press freedom challenges. Yeah, what interested me about that was that around 2010, Reporters Without Borders kind of got on my radar as an organization. I have an interest in France and speaking French, so I had gone to Paris and got interested in what their work was. And one of the main things they do is put together a Freedom of the Press Index every year that ranks countries by sort of the level of ability of a journalist to do their work unencumbered in countries. So in other words, how dangerous is it to be a journalist? And that really caught my eye, you know, growing up in the United States, feeling, you know, very comfortable and certainly, you know, happy that I could work in a place where I could be free of constraint and, you know, censorship. And I certainly was never worried or threatened for my life. So that is something that is a benefit of, you know, living and working in the United States. Although in recent years, those things have changed. But it got on my radar, the international journalism and what journalists are up against in other regimes. And that, of course, has led to some of the work I've done in Iceland and then South Africa. What was the work you were doing there? Well, the reason that Iceland got on my radar was that, as I said, I was starting to look at Reporters Without Borders, and I was looking at their Freedom of the Press Index, and it was no secret that places like Syria, Cuba, Pakistan, Russia, China were atop the list of places that it is quite dangerous to be a journalist. And at that time, I was independent. I didn't have any CNN backing, no corporate backing, no New York Times, and so I either didn't have the funding and thought it was quite dangerous for me as just an individual to go to any of these countries. And I thought, why don't I turn this index on its head and look at the other side? So what is at the one through 10 slots in terms of countries? Many in Scandinavia, like Norway. And I noticed that Iceland was atop the index almost every year for like a 10-year run. I had had an interest in Iceland as a child growing up in upstate New York with cold and long frigid winters. I had an affinity for all things winter and snow. So I thought, well, why don't I couple that interest with going to a place like Iceland where I can ask the question, maybe it's safer to do journalism there, but is the quality of journalism necessarily better? And so I did. I went in January and February of 2012 on a self-funded, self-designed research project. You know, what, what American goes to Iceland in the winter but me? Uh, but it was a wonderful time to go because I had open arms by the Icelandic people. I was in Reykjavik for six weeks. And what I did was I set up interviews with print and TV and radio reporters and spoke to over 25 or 30 reporters there. Um, of course, we conducted ourselves in English. They readily speak English there. 
And what I basically learned was that in Iceland at that time, they really looked to the United States as a bastion of freedom of the press. They took cues from us, Watergate, the Washington Post, the New York Times, Woodward and Bernstein, all the foundations of freedom of the press and the First Amendment here. And many of those journalists were either educated in the United States at places like the Columbia School of Journalism, which is one of the, if not the most competitive journalism schools in the United States, or they did their schooling in other parts of Europe and in parts of England. So many of them have traveled to the United States and were very well versed in journalism, you know, abroad, you know, outside of Iceland. And they took cues from us, which, you know, certainly felt, um, you know, very good to hear, but also they were living in a country of a population of 330,000 people. Their capital is 100,000 people. You know, so the numbers of people are quite small. It's insulated. Everybody knows everybody, that kind of attitude. Um, But they look to us for a cue. And that was gratifying to know. But also, I felt an extra special responsibility as an American. Like, you know, the other parts of the world are watching us. They're looking to us for cues in terms of writing legislation and continuing to protect. So they do experience a level of censorship, libel claims. It's certainly a much uh, safer place to be. I mean, it has lower crime um, you know, than other parts of the world. And it was absolutely fascinating to be among uh, fellow journalists, to be in their newsrooms and to confer and learn from them um, and to share with them, you know, my stories uh, growing up in the United States, and then also practicing journalism. It's interesting. I, I had the opportunity in 2018 to travel to Tajikistan, which I think is ranked around 140 on the World Press Freedom Index. You know, it was a really eye-opening experience for me as a an American and as an American journalist. And, you know, talking to journalists there, talking to young people who wanted to, you know, tell meaningful, sort of powerful stories, and then having basically face facing or dealing with a regime that is oppressive, is controlling the media indirectly through, you know, economic sanctions. And it really kind of reinforced my perspective, my belief that, that how lucky we are to live in the society we do. But then on the other hand is understanding that an oppressive regime can come in very quickly and sort of, you know, take away a lot of those rights. And those rights, you know, you always have to to be fighting for them and have to be mindful that something that you have could be taken away. And so I guess in a broader sense, I would would encourage anybody who has the opportunity, any journalist who, who has the opportunity to go overseas to do so and sort of observe how, you know, different types of reporters in different countries are able to get the news out or, you know, what maybe type of obstacles they're facing. Now, you also went to South Africa. What was that experience like? Yeah, and I appreciate you bringing up all that, Michael. Yeah, South Africa on the other extreme, just in terms of being in the Southern Hemisphere, the climate is different, the economy is different, the political standing. That opportunity also presented itself to me. It was pretty interesting. I'm part of an organization I believe it's pronounced ISNI. It's the International Society of Weekly Newspaper Editors. So it's kind of a mouthful, as is the acronym. But I do encourage journalists to look it up. It's a longstanding journalism organization filled with journalists and newspaper owners from around the world. And they meet every year in a different location. 
And the beauty there is that a newspaper owner in South Africa named Anton von Zill, who's in Limpopo, which is in the northeast corner of South Africa, put a call out several years ago saying he'd like to do a newspaper exchange, a media exchange with a fellow journalist. And I thought, oh, that'd be great. I'd love to come there and learn from you. And I'd love to share with you my experiences. But I was living in Seattle at the time and just the flights seemed cost prohibitive as did the time zone change. So I put it out of my mind. And then in 2015, I was found myself living in France, lo and behold. And I resurrected the idea, got on a call with Anton via Skype and realized that while the flight was about 15 hours from Paris to Johannesburg, the time zone was only off by one zone so that it just made it a little bit easier. So I had left France in May of that year and he and his wife and family had welcomed me with open arms to their home and he himself owns two local newspapers and he allowed me to serve as a guest editor and observe and share and be welcomed by the warmth of the South African people and the reporters who he works with. He produces two newspapers, one that is in all English, the other that's in Afrikaans. Of course, I don't know the Afrikaans language, but they readily speak English like they do in Iceland and many other countries. And so they were polite enough to speak in English in my presence. And so I got the chance to live with the family for three weeks and then serve as a guest editor, helping to edit and copy edit and review some of their stories and learn what it was like on the ground of a local newspaper there. And again, to to know, and this ties into some of the thoughts you just had, was that you know, we in the United States, we don't have a lock on journalism. You know, journalism is a construct. It's defined and news gathering is done differently in every country. There are countries that don't have journalism. They don't use that language because it's so suppressed. So the things that I would encourage all journalists, but certainly student journalists and up and coming is to really get an understanding of what's going on outside of the United States. I must admit that when I was a student in the late 80s and early 90s, I felt pretty insulated just given that age and you know lack of maturity and just being so focused on studies that this is journalism and you know this is how to write a news story and this is what I need to do to get a job. Whereas, you know, with maturity, with the professional experience and with the changes in the career and the profession, that this is a public service, this is my passion, and I do it because it's, it's in my blood. You know, I became a journalist because I was, you know, the five or seven year old who was walking around the house asking questions. And so when college time came, my father said, oh, why don't you study journalism? You know, that's how it works. So getting out of the four walls of your newsroom, getting out of the United States and traveling, and this goes for everyone, not just students who are studying journalism, but really anyone, pick up a newspaper when you go to London or when you go to Pakistan or when you go to South Africa, you know, watch the news, see what's going on there, but also see how they produce it. To circle back to the Tajikistan story, I got to speak at several different places, some of which had, you know, these are young people who had journalism clubs. These things were sort of set up by the U.S. State Department, but the the students who were involved in it, I mean, they had things to say. They saw issues that they wanted to see addressed in part of the, you know, the public narrative. So, I mean, there was a hunger for them to say something to affect change. And so, 
you know, it was important to them, however way they could do it, whether it be podcasting, which was the reason I was there, or some other means, is to tell their story. They they were really jazzed about doing that. I want to circle back also to you sort of offhandedly say that you're an independent journalist. They kind of find that fascinating. And I think more and more journalists these days are finding themselves as, quote unquote, independent journalists. Because the old thing where you would go and get a regular job, you know, I think you started, we started out the conversation saying that when we we both started, there were a lot of journalism jobs. You could have a long-term career in it. But because we have this in our blood and this is something we believe in, you know, we want to be part of journalism. And if, if we can't find that full-time job, we have to sort of make it work in another way. How do you make it work? The point about independent is important because I make the distinction between independent and freelance. They really are two different things. And for a while there, you know, I, I am freelance and then I'm for hire, you know, hello. But independent truly means that I have no ties to a conglomerate, to a corporation, and that I can make my own deadlines and my own stories and I can approach them in the way that is important to me. Now, that also makes it difficult to land assignments, um, not necessarily having those ties. But as we both said, in the late 80s and early 90s, I mean, I lived in New York City. I'd opened the New York Times, the, the print version. The classifieds were filled with jobs. Editor, reporter, slew of them up and down You know, Wall Street. I actually worked in Wall Street. I worked for CNN Money. At the time, it was called CNN FN, CNN Financial News. It transferred to CNN Money. And like I said, we were in high demand. People wanted us and those skills. As I matured and progressed in my profession, what I found, having worked for McClatchy, Gannett, CNN, which was, in fact, I started at CNN the day of the AOL Time Warner merger, which was January 10th, 2000. And I remember that date because uh, that's the day of the merger and that's the day I started. And the day I started, there were rumblings in the newsroom about layoffs. So I got a, a taste of layoffs, worked there for nine months with the rumblings of, hey, you know, during your lunch break, it wouldn't hurt to go on a couple job interviews. This was the directive from my manager at the time. You know, if you need to take some time uh, to working on your resume, you know, I'll look the other way from your screen, you know, and not say anything. So, you know, and this is 20 years ago. So with that and having worked for the corporate and getting, I must say that especially working at Gannett, there was a separation of church and state. There was a separation of the editorial and the advertising. We were on floor three, they were on floor four. You know, there wasn't the publisher coming to the newsroom and telling us what to write. But I will say that as a reporter and somebody who, you know, wanted to really follow a story and dig in deep, you know, there were days I'd walk into the newsroom at 9.42 when I was supposed to be in at 9.30. And, you know, my explanation was, hey, you know, on the way in, I bumped into so-and-so and got a news lead. But I was told that I had to be at the desk at 9.30. And I thought, really? Like, I'm a reporter. I'm out getting the news. I can't just sit at a desk. So getting those types of messages because I work for a corporation I eventually started moving toward wanting to be independent. And those things don't necessarily align because you need to make a living. You want to have income and you have you know, a wonderful set of benefits from these corporations and job security and so forth. And that's where I really feel for the current student journalists is that 
they are faced with you know mounting debt from their school loans in addition to a, a really rough economy and they're getting messages from their parents their guidance counselors and even current journalists saying news is dead don't go into it it's a lost cause and so forth so i wear the independent hat even more proudly and would like to attract student and up-and-coming journalists as someone who wants to continue to encourage them. I'm not going to pull the wool over their eyes and tell them they're going to make a lot of money or that there's job security, but I can help hold their hand and give them some direction in terms of where to pitch their work, how to network, how to get their work out there. Today, the opportunities are endless. You know, who cares what McClatchy and Gannett and New York Times are doing? You can have a platform out there today, given social media. It's a wonderful thing. And that can lead into our next discussion about who is a journalist and who, who can and, and will do journalism. Okay, well, let's do that. But before we <laughs> dive right into that, how did you sort of put yourself out there as a mentor to younger journalists? Well, I've had a wonderful experience as an adjunct working for Western Washington University for eight years in Bellingham. So I moved from New York State to the West Coast. You couldn't get much farther from my hometown, which is Poughkeepsie, New York, to Bellingham, Washington. In fact, I went to grad school in a place called Plattsburgh, New York. And I like to say that Plattsburgh, New York is to Montreal as Bellingham is to Vancouver, B.C., geographically speaking. They're both very close to the Canadian border, Bellingham and Plattsburgh, that is, you know, about 20 minutes. So anyway, I moved from one border town to another. And in so doing, I had earned a master's degree while I was in Plattsburgh, and I really loved the campus vibe. I loved being in university, and I loved teaching things that I liked to teach, which at that time was public speaking and then, of course, journalism. So I was hired to teach public speaking, professional communication, and then began taking on classes, teaching news writing. I'm an AP style and grammar geek, so you know all things grammar, I'm all over it. Let me stop you there. What's your position on the hyphen? Oh, on the hyphen? I thought you were going to ask me on the Oxford comma. I, you know, I like the hyphen. I do. I think it makes, uh, it, it, <laughs> it speaks to clarity. I'm all for clarity. So yes, thanks for asking. I love the hyphen. Okay, and, I interrupt. Uh, yeah. <laughs> do you use the Oxford comma? Uh, no, because the AP style doesn't use it, but I am also a book editor in another life. I wear many hats, so I also edit memoir and nonfiction, and many people use CMOS, which is Chicago Manual of Style, which does adhere to the Oxford, also known as the serial comma. So I take no stance on it. I'm neutral in terms of my feelings. I will follow whatever style is presented to me, and in that way, I'm a bang-up editor. Okay. I just wanted to address the uh, grammar geeks out in the audience. Anyway, I, I interrupted you when you were talking about you know, how you became a mentor. So teaching students has been a, a really a real passion when you're faced with a young person who's as jazzed about Oxford commas and hyphens and so forth and journalism. You know, when, when somebody's like that is in your midst, it's like, oh, well, here's somebody who gets it, who wants to do journalism. I don't have to convince you. You know, they're the editor of the student newspaper. They like to write. Boom. You know, we're, we're speaking the same language. So I see the fire in their eyes and I want to encourage those folks and go against the messages, again, of the parents, of the guidance counselors and our culture saying that news is dead. So 
I mentor students in a pro bono fashion. I'm on a variety of Facebook pages, I, you know, via social media, Twitter, and so forth. I'm also active with my alma mater, which is Ithaca College. Any journalism student who wants to call me up or reach me, they can easily Google my name. Feel free to contact me, and I'd be happy to, to mentor you. And what I mean by that is it's pretty informal, but basically I'll be a sounding board I'll send you job announcements that come my way that don't fit me, but sound like a good fit for you. I'll help you network. I'll introduce you to people. I will read your work, help copy edit, proofread, work on reporting techniques, sourcing and attribution. We can talk AP style. I can help you pitch your work. I'll network with you with folks I know in New York and across the country or across the world. Uh, as I mentioned, I've worked internationally. I'll be uh, a shoulder to cry on. I'll be somebody to ask for advice. And I'll be somebody to commiserate with because I'm in the same position. When you're an independent and freelance, as your audience knows who are freelance, it becomes isolating. There's a lot of freedom and it's wonderful that I make my own hours. I work from home. I'm sitting in a beautiful living room right now with the sun shining at my desk, you know, in my own space here without a editor breathing down my neck. But it's also somewhat isolating and you lack the human interaction, but also the camaraderie of what a newsroom offers. I got to say, one of my favorite movies is All the President's Men. No brainer there. I mean, that took place, uh, the movie, well, when it was produced, it, it takes place in the 70s. But I, I actually sat in newsrooms in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. And I got to say, I miss the buzz of a newsroom. I worked in New York City, having all the TVs on. You'd have four, if not six or 10 different clocks showing all the different time zones. It'd be loud. You'd be focused on typing uh, in those days on a typewriter, but now a laptop, you've got your earbud in, somebody's doing a phone call and, you know, just the energy, the camaraderie, the being able to confer with each other, going to your editor's office. We lack that with today, how newsrooms have been so decreased and, you know, are shrinking. And it's great that people are freelancing, but I enjoy that part of the profession. And so if there are students who are up and coming and they decide to freelance, they don't get that opportunity today if they go directly to freelancing and not working in a newsroom. And that is really vital to having those conversations. I mean, you made a silly joke about talking about the hyphen and Oxford comma, but truly, how is it that we learn unless we have people to talk to? Yeah, it's the continuity of everything that we learn and that we, we sort of pass on to the next generation. I mean, some of the best conversations I've had in my life have been in newsrooms. Much of the learning that I've had about the way the world works has been in newsrooms. And you lose that when you, you become independent. I'm in a similar boat that you are. I'm, I guess, would qualify as an independent freelancing journalist these days. And it does get lonely sometimes, you know, so unless you get a podcast where you get to call a journalist once a week and bug them with questions, there's not much for scratching that part of your, um, your, your psyche. Well, you uh, can call me anytime, but, Michael. We can have okay. a coffee once a week. And in fact, I've done that. I, I do. I am also a professional journalist coach. So I have mainly broadcast, but also print. And I'm not suggesting that I coach you, but but yeah, these once a week, like, you know, call them what you will, but commiseration sessions, or it could be a half an hour where you both have your coffee, you know, whether it's just an audio or you could do a Skype or Zoom call. 
you know, I, I it's may a take nice you way up to. On that. <laughs> hey, it's, seriously, I think it's a great way, as you said, to continue to learn and be up on topics, but also to hear another human voice. <laughs> yeah. Who shares the same experiences? You know, you may not agree politically or, you know, about certain things, but you have the same sort of work and life experiences having worked in the newsroom. So before we get away from talking about mentorship and, and talking, you know, talking about young journalists, you know, what's your impression of the, the up, up and coming generation of journalists? You know, what are they like? What are their concerns about our industry? The students I talk to are super jazz. Now, I'm interacting with people who are studying journalism, who are the editors-in-chief and photojournalists and copy editors of their school newspapers, high school and college level. So I'm talking to folks who are super jazz. So I can't speak to the general population of students. It's not a random sample. It's a very specific sample. I'm excited that there are students that are interested in journalism that, you know, I see myself in them, you know, wanting to stay up till midnight to get the paper out or, you know, in digital form, whatever it is. And I do also hear that they're concerned. They're like, hey, what am I going to do when I graduate? Where are the jobs? You know, where am I going to go? And so, I mean, it's like any young person. They're worried about finances. They're worried about debt and all the other things that go on in your life when you're 21 or 22. But I am encouraged because I know that there are young people who believe in what journalism is, asking hard questions, challenging authority, wanting to be a good writer, expressing themselves in writing. And that for me is really so encouraging because truly I'm first a writer before I'm even a journalist. I became a journalist because I my teachers and my parents said, oh, you're a good writer. And I thought, oh, okay, that sounds great. I just did it because I had a diary, a journal, and it was something that I gravitated toward. But they were saying this to me because it could be a profession. Now that I'm you know, 30 years into it and I've matured and I'm a professional, I know that that's also my passion, that that's my talent. So at that age, I think it's encouraging that anybody who wants to put pen to paper or, you know, type on a keyboard and express themselves is something that we need to encourage in any culture. Now, you've been advocating for the the new voices movement. Can you sort of talk about what that is and what the goal of it is? It's amazing how many people don't know what new voices is, including myself. I'll tell you that I, in 2017, when it first came on my radar at that point, I'd been in journalism for more than 25 years, and I had no idea. The second thing I should say about it is that I've come way late to the game, especially in Washington state. I've lived in Bellingham. I'm currently speaking to you from Olympia, which is the state capital. The first thing I have to say is there are scores of people who have been working since the 1990s on trying to get this new voices legislation passed in Washington state. So I certainly do not take any kind of credit, but briefly It came on my radar as I was interested in student journalism that students actually aren't necessarily covered by the First Amendment and that the SPLC, which is the Student Press Law Center, a nonprofit in Washington, D.C., was helping students spearhead this movement to pass state-by-state legislation that further protects and preserves student voices in terms of their freedom of the press and their freedom of speech at the high school and college level. 
Briefly, in 1988, there was a Supreme Court case called Hazelwood that turned the clock back. So it was a bad thing, a damaging thing to students. And it essentially enabled censorship by schools that were looking at stories that they didn't feel presented their either high school or college in a very flattering light. These were students writing about teen pregnancy, at the time maybe HIV AIDS, they were writing about drug use, which from a reporting standpoint could come across very objective and factually and informatively, but because the schools were uncomfortable with it, they were using this as an opportunity to further censor and use prior restraint to say, nope, can't do that, can't do that. Well, in brief, and it is a little bit more complicated than that, there were many states that were able to pass legislation that further helped preserve and protect student rights and say, you know what, if students are doing journalism, just like the New York Times, and it's not libelous, it's not defaming anyone, it's not invasion of privacy, and in other words, they're following the First Amendment, then they too have the right to publish a story about drug use, cannabis use, teen pregnancy, crimes, and so forth. So what has happened over the years is that state by state legislation has come up, and to date, 14 states have this legislation. Washington state passed its law, which was called, you know, it's the new voices law, and they passed their law in 2018. I got on board as a professional journalist in front of the Washington state House Judiciary Committee, which was an absolute honor to speak in front of legislators and tell them why they should support this. Now, of course, they were hearing from students. They were hearing from faculty advisors, English and journalism teachers at the high school and college level. They were hearing from folks from the Washington Journalism Education Association, which is very much supported and pushed this. And you know, a slew of people that have come way before me, a woman named Fern Valentine, who's been one of the, the biggest supporters and pushers of the legislation. So it was a long time coming, but Washington state passed its law. And then there is a list of states that are in the same position. Texas has a movement, New York state, Nebraska, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, the list goes on. But unfortunately, this is something that needs to be done. At the state level, we need to protect and preserve students' students' rights to publish the stories you would think that the First Amendment would cover them. So this is something that I have been following in the other states. And if there are professional journalists who get wind of this, and they're located in Virginia, Indiana, Hawaii, Minnesota, Missouri, and the list goes on, you know, they can go to their state capital and to speak up to help support and get these laws approved in all 50 states. And I guess what you would say was you, if you're unsure, is uh, to contact, what is it, the Student Press, what is it called Student again? Press Law Center, which, it's funny, their acronym is SPLC, so they're not the Southern Poverty Law Center, which I know you've had as a guest on your podcast, but it is SPLC.org, and they are a nonprofit that specifically stands up for student freedom of the press and freedom of the speech rights. They have a hotline, they do pro bono work. For students, any student editor-in-chief should know that they exist. I would imagine that they do, and that a faculty advisor knows that they exist. Because when they are being told that they can't print something in their student newspaper and they believe that they can, 
that the Student Press Law Center is there in their corner. They have a free hotline. They have pro bono lawyers and other staff members who are there to listen to them and then advise them on how to inform whether it's the principal, the board of education, or other administrators who are telling them that they can't publish something. Now, again, student journalists have a responsibility, just like the New York Times and every other professional journalist, is to uphold the First Amendment, to print things that aren't libelous and defamatory and so forth. But again, these are student journalists who are doing good work in their communities. As we know, with all the layoffs and the decompression at the professional level, what's happened is that the student newspapers have picked up the slack in many cases where they have become the mouthpiece and the purveyor and the disseminator of real news about what's going on in the school, what's going on at the university level, or what's going on in the community. You're going to find out because the campus newspaper is covering it. Your local newspaper, I mean, you open a Gannett or McClatchy newspaper on a Monday, I mean, it's thinner than a, a pancake. I don't know if that's a good analogy, but if there's an education reporter, they're spread so thin if they even exist in that newsroom. So the student journalism that's happening is very good. I mean, the students are winning awards across the country and there are students breaking news and uncovering and exposing things that need to be told. They're doing it, you know, with excellent writing and they're doing it under the same professional standards as, you know, any other journalist is doing. Like I said, I keep saying the New York Times, the Washington, Washington Post. But I must mention that every journalist, whether young or old, needs to read Pete Hamill's News is a Verb. Now, it's going back a ways. It's from 1998. It's about 100 pages. Look it up online and order it. You can read it in an hour or two. But it's basically Pete Hamill, longtime newspaper man from New York City, who it's a manifesto, really. But the essence of it, news is a verb, is that you don't necessarily need to be a journalist to do good journalism. And I'm not demeaning any journalism program. I certainly hold a journalism degree. I call myself a journalist. But as we know in this country, there are no formal credentials. And there's a reason for that. You know, and it's not like being a doctor or even a massage therapist or, you know, a nail salon tech where you need to have some kind of credential. I mean, there's certainly standards and a code of ethics that you would follow. But the point of this is that journalism is something that we do, that we can all do. And it's also a mindset. And I believe that even if you don't study journalism in college or even go to college and whether whatever side of the aisle you're on, Republican, Democrat, you're conservative, liberal, independent, whatever, is that you adapt and adopt a healthy skepticism to authority that you ask questions, that you raise questions, that you say, huh, you know, that doesn't really sound right. And that you also don't back down when you're being told that you're not allowed to do certain things. Authority does not like questions. You know, being a journalist is often unpopular, frustrating, and misunderstood. And when we raise questions, what really happens is that authority feels like, hey, don't even ask the questions, you know, just do what you're told and this is the way things are. So my message to young people is to whether or not they go into journalism is to adopt a healthy skepticism and that consider journalism as something that one does, not necessarily the hat that one wears. Amen to that. 
Jennifer, I feel that we could talk a very long time about these subjects, and I actually think I'm going to take you up on this of maybe continuing the conversation in some other way, maybe something that our audience can participate in. Thanks again for being on the podcast. How can people find out about you, get in contact with you? Well, you are welcome, Michael. Yes, once we hang up, we can make a coffee date going forward, and I'd love to do that with listeners and you know journalists and students alike. Sure, just Google my name. It's Jennifer Karchmer. You'll find me all over social media. I'm also on Twitter at at journalist underbar JK and JK are my initials. Yeah, find me on social media. I do have a Facebook page. I'm not on there as much. I, I like to actually tune out a little bit, but I do have a professional page that's called Jennifer Karchmer, independent journalist. Uh, but yeah, just Google my name and I'd be happy to be in touch with students and professionals alike talking shop. Thanks for coming on and talking journalism. You bet. Thank you. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. And if you hurry, there's still time to score your own It's All Journalism coffee mug by taking one of our anonymous online surveys. Go to itsalljournalism.com to learn more. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emil Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.